Welcome to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. This is Michael Bond. Today I'm speaking with pastors Mel Massingale and Todd Stanley. We cover a range of topics, including sinful versus righteous lawbreaking. We also talk about big platforms like Facebook and YouTube, as well as whether churches should be preparing for the loss of these platforms. We also discuss what it's like to lead talented people who have bad attitudes. Anyway, this conversation was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. I think you will too. Before we jump in, I want to remind you to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Also, don't forget to subscribe at summitpodcasts.church forward slash subscribe. This will put you in the loop for all things Summit Audio. You can also learn more about the Back 40 Network by visiting back40.network. As always, thank you for listening, and without further delay, I bring you Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. All right, so I think we should go ahead and start off with this week in church leadership. And I had this article that I found that I thought was pretty interesting. And it was about the pursuit of holiness or the idea of being holy. And the person, the author of the article, uh, was using literary characters as his analogs for uh, like demonstrations of holiness. And I think that. I'm a little bit cautious about that right off the bat because I think Christ should be our example of holiness, Mm -hmm. our standard. But at the same time, I think he makes a good point when he talks about the duplicitous nature of humanity and how someone who could uh, be in the pursuit of holiness might seem like they're not in pursuit of holiness at times. Um, And so I want to know what you think about that. Like, first of all, is it the case that... uh, someone who is in pursuit of holiness or who is being sanctified has moments where they do not look like they're being sanctified and where they might even look duplicitous. And secondly, is there a distinction here worth talking about when it comes to following the letter of the law versus following the spirit of the law? So I think of someone, a literary character like Harry Potter, for example. Harry Potter and his friends are sort of always breaking the rules, but they're breaking the rules in service of the good. <laughs> now, that's also dangerous because the the old trope is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. So this is a tricky uh, ground to walk, but I think there are none better to talk about it than the two of you. That's right. There's <laughs> none, none better <laughs> none. anywhere yes. on planet Earth. <laughs> We've scoured and examined every human heart. The only two people available to talk about it were us. We weren't the best. We're just the only ones here Man. right now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um, I'm just gonna drink my coffee. There's a, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I would I would say starting with your first part. Yes, I think um, we think we think spiritual maturity is linear, and it's not. It is an ebb and flow. It is two steps forward and one step back. That that's at least my view of sanctification. Um, that is an ongoing process. So I think it's a hundred percent possible to see somebody and see them in their worst moment and not their best moment, and go, "Oh, we'll see. That's who they are." And it doesn't necessarily capture who they actually are, who they're in yeah. working to become or allowing the spirit to help them to become. It's just you caught them in a moment. And I think if we are objective about any human being that we want to think about, including ourselves, we would go, oh, yeah, that that's the case. Because even this weekend, uh, this last weekend at Summit and during the series we're in, <clears throat> we're using pop culture 
as a vehicle to help proclaim the gospel. And I had a person in our church that was very unhappy with me because we were using pop culture in that way. (laughs) And the implication, or maybe it was my inference, was that somehow we were lacking holiness because we were using, um, using, you know, what would be called secular means to present the gospel. So, I mean, I think that's, I think it's the case. There's no evidence of that in scripture, by the way. Of of using secular things (laughs) to present the gospel. Exactly. (laughs) Maybe their pastor's not doing a good enough job of sharing the whole word with them. So um, anyway, so I I feel like, yeah, if you just take a- sorry. That was (laughs) was a little snarky. Yeah. A little snapshot of somebody's life. Yeah. (laughs) That was was me veering off the road of sanctification for a second. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So if, if you just take a snapshot, yeah, you can find some- really despicable things that believers do um but it doesn't doesn't necessarily tell the whole story in my in my opinion yeah yeah and i mean i think uh, there's plenty of evidence in scripture i mean paul talks about this in romans like at length really talking about how that you know the thing that i want to do i don't do and there's you know there's another law that I find that's at work within my body you know and uh and I, i think that's true for all of us and, you know, Scripture tells us that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and that as long as we live in these bodies, that's the way that it's going to be. And so for all of us, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a linear thing. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Yeah. Mm. And that's really what it deals about, that, you know, that uh, it's not a, a flow chart where everything's always up and to the right. It, yeah. you know, but it sh- we should be able to look over the arc of our lives and see a trend toward Christ likeness, mm-hmm. and that that's the thing that we need to be looking at. Like, am I more like Jesus today than I was last year, last month, last week? You know, not did I check off all the boxes today, yeah. but rather is that you know, am I pursuing Christ? Is is there evidence and clear evidence in my life that that is the case that I'm, you know? Mm-hmm. So, what are the implications of this for how the church handles punishment or like remediation for sin? Well, the first sort of thing, thing that I would say is that the church is not in the business of punishment. Right. We are. There is discipline. Yeah. There's a prop. I, I would push back a little and say some churches are. Well, in the yeah. Business of punishment. <laughs> Maybe I should say the church, the church should not be. be yeah. yeah, in the business. The church of punishment. should not yeah. be in the business of punishment. Right. It should always be correction, <clears throat> and it should always be with an eye toward restoration. Yeah, uh, we have been far too guilty and far too quick to just cut people off, oftentimes, uh, and that should not be the case. Um, that doesn't mean that discipline is not needed. I mean, if I'm a good parent, right, mm-hmm. then I have rules for my children. And there's discipline that's needed at times. There's correction that's needed at time, at times. But it should always be corrective in mm, yeah. in its aim and not punitive. And too too often we've been punitive in in our discipline. And I think that's been the the issue. I think the same. I, th- I think when it comes to um, what Todd is talking about, correction and restoration. You know, when to exercise that is the same as what you were talking about a minute ago. Like taking a snapshot, you know, it's important to contextualize 
somebody's bad behavior and like look and go, well, is this who they are? Is this a regular pattern of sinfulness yeah. or is this a mistake that they made? Um, so just like I would encourage people to look and not just take a snapshot, you do the same thing when it comes to um, to correction as well. If, if somebody just makes an honest mistake, they lose their temper, they said something they shouldn't, whatever it is. It's one thing if it's if it's a one-off or if it's just an oops, right? It's another thing if it's like, hey, here's a clear pattern of behavior in your life. And yeah. I think you treat those two things differently. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, you still, there's consequences for those oops moments, <clears throat> but the consequences might look different than, hey, we're trying to correct uh, sinful behavior that's occurred yeah. over time. Right. So what are some tests that you run in yourself whenever you're thinking about let's say we don't want to call it punitive because we don't want it to be centered around punishment, but say correction of someone. Um, I know one of the things that I've thought about is, okay, if I'm angry or if I'm upset, that's not the time to do it. Yeah. Like wait, right. wait till that passes. And then a lot of those nefarious motives will pass with it. Yeah. Um, do you have anything that you guys think about? Like when you're, you have to deal with someone who is in unrepentant sin and you're trying to issue correction, but you're trying to figure out in your own heart, okay, well, am I just upset with this person? Do I just really not want the best for this person? Like, how do you sort that out in your own, in your own, uh, being? I think it varies from person to person. Like for, I would say Mel is much more decisive in those ways than I am. I am a processor. I have to like really back up and and take some time to think about stuff. Uh, and so I think it it changes from person to person. You have to know number one, you have to know yourself well enough to know what's going on in inside of you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if I don't if I don't know myself well, you know, if if I've not spent time reflecting and allowing the Holy Spirit to you know, illuminate things in my heart, then I'll, I'll be reactionary. We, yep. we just tend toward that. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's the number one thing. Uh, you know, there are the simple things like people say, you know, count to 10 before you say something, you know, those kinds of things, whatever you might need to do um, in regard to that. And then, uh, man, beyond that, I don't know that I have a lot of clear cut answers. I think this stuff gets is it's really messy mm-hmm. because people are involved. And whenever people are involved, it's always messy. Um, you know, for example, somebody who's truly repentant and somebody who's not can say the same things sometimes. They can look very similar. And you've mm-hmm. got to that that's why we can't be too quick in any of these things. Um, because we wanna we want to be able to see things clearly, weigh things out, give things time, uh, but we don't want to move too slowly either. Probably Mel would speak more to that. Um, but that's, I don't know if that's all that helpful, but that's mm-hmm. what comes to mind. I'm probably guilty of being too quick with some of that than too late, and that's part of my nature. But <clears throat> um, especially if it's a blatantly sinful issue, I feel like those typically don't resolve themselves over time. People don't be, just become less sinful outside of some sort of correction, in my opinion. And so if, <laughs> if there is some sort of sinful behavior going on, I think it's really important to step in. And again, for me, it's sooner rather than later. And um, and one of the filters I always try to use is, um, hey, my goal isn't to punish them or to fix them even. My goal is to pastor them. And that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. leadership. So how can I lead them through this? And um, I can't control their response. I'm not responsible for their response. I'm responsible for how I approach them. Am I doing it in a way that is, you know, going back to what Todd said earlier, is it restorative? You know, is it about you were bad, so I'm going to punish you? Or is it about, 
hey, you, you got off track and just like our GPS corrects us, you know, I want to correct you because this is what I see and this is what I believe about who you are. This is what I, where I want to help you get. Um, that's a totally different that's a totally different heart than you were bad and mm-hmm. you deserve punishment. You know, we're yeah, going to bench yeah. you because you were bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if we can pastor people through that stuff and give them an outline, give them a pathway, like, okay, here's what happened. Here's mm, the consequences. Yeah. Now let's talk about what it looks like. You know, right. we can't, we can't restore you in 30 days, but you know what, man, my heart would be to restore you in six months, yeah. but here's what that might look like. Yeah, and that, so and that's where there's got to be agreement because yeah. there's been lots of people I've tried to correct in, in, a, in, in my opinion, as lovingly biblical a way as possible. But if they're not in agreement with it, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. That pathway to redemption idea is crucial here, I think, yeah. because even in a discussion with someone who disagrees with you, if you don't give them an opportunity to save face, mm-hmm. they're, they're like way less likely to admit that they're wrong about something. Mm-hmm. And that can happen even in a conversation, let alone like trying to change, you know, having a heart change with someone. Yeah. So I think that that's one of the things that gets lost a lot is like, okay, well, we know what's wrong and we know how to issue correction, but we're going to be light on the pathway to redemption or we're not really going to give this person an opportunity to save face or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And Todd, something you mentioned, I think is um, interesting too. Like you said, it's sort of subjective in terms of each person deciding like how they go about the process of delineating whether or not they are issuing punishment or correction in their own heart. So that's, that's a subjective nature from the perspective of the correction issuer. Do you Mm -hmm. think it's also subjective when it comes to the person who's uh, deserving correction? So for instance, um, do you think that there are certain people that you're better off just handing off to someone else than dealing with yourself? Like should pastors think, okay, I have to be the one to correct any person who goes wrong or should they say, okay, well, I know I just really don't like this guy that much. So I need to hand him off to somebody else. Um, I think that it's possible for pastors to be too close to a situation sometimes, uh, and that can cloud your judgment. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we if we if we think that we are somehow more than human, uh, <laughs> that you know, then then we we're fooling ourselves. Uh, I would say, like, man, there there are people that maybe I'm a close friend with, right? that I may not be the the person that needs to be walking them through correction because I I my my I'm clouded in my judgment, you know, maybe or or I might tend to be too lenient or too strict. Mm-hmm. Be, you know what I think both possibilities are are there. And so yes, absolutely. Sometimes I think wisdom says you know you're going to, I need to, I need to allow someone else to oversee the disciplinary process here and the, and the restorative process here. And, and I, maybe I can speak into it at some point, but I can't, I can't be the person who, who walks through this mm-hmm. with them. Um, and then too, one of the things that I think we need to remember in this conversation is that the only influence that we have as pastors is the influence that people allow us to have. Yeah. And so if we think that we can come into these kinds of things and be really heavy handed and man, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And we tend to, I've seen, you know, probably all of us at some point or another have seen that kind of thing, push people out of the church rather than restore them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So this next point that I want to talk about, this uh, idea of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, I think this one is so important that it might be one of the issues to try to sort out when it comes to the overall health of the big C church and the health of the culture for that matter. So I I liken this to the to the idea of Christ, um, you know, summarizing the law with the, with the great commandments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that uh, an example of getting this wrong are the Pharisees. And so here's the thing though. You think about like, and the literary example that we might use would be like Harry Potter and his gang. You know, they're always, they're breaking the rules, but they're breaking the rules in service to the spirit of good. Yeah. And so do we see situations where something, you know, like lying, you know, for instance, to, to, uh, to achieve the service of God. I mean, we see that in scripture. So do you see situations where a person might sin, but they're sinning in the service to the spirit of good, if that makes sense? <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that the, I'm assuming that the, the story that you're referring to as far as evidence of that in scripture is Rahab. Yes. Okay. So, so Rahab, uh, lies and says she doesn't know where the spies are uh, in order to protect their lives, right? Mm-hmm. So she says she doesn't know when, in fact, they're on her roof uh, hiding. And and so, and then scripture actually says that that was counted to her as righteousness, uh, which is an interesting thing, <laughs> yeah. all right? So here's, and I didn't know we are going to get into ethics today, but here's the, here's the thing that I would say, the that people always supersede the law, Right? Rahab wasn't lying to protect herself. She wasn't lying to protect her own self-interests. She wasn't um, being deceitful for personal gain. She wasn't, you know, that there wasn't anything malicious in that, right? And, and she was doing so to preserve someone else's life. So in those instances, I, I believe that people always supersede the law. Uh, an example from Christ would be when, when he talks about the Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so if someone's ox is in a ditch, well, then you go and you work to get that ox out, even though it's the Sabbath. So they were breaking the letter of the law, mm-hmm. but they were observing the spirit of the law because they were loving their neighbor, mm-hmm. right? And so people always supersede the law. The problem that we get into <laughs> is that we will break the law uh, in our own self-interest. Yeah. And that is always sin. Yeah, yeah that's um, a beautiful summary and very succinct. I don't know that I would add anything to that. I think it's really that's a really good way of putting that. So would you say then that maybe one of the... Uh, chief characteristics of someone who is in healthy communion with the spirit of God is someone who has a good bearing on when to do that and when not to do that. Like, that's the thing. It's like people hear this and they might think, well, you can use that to justify a lot of things because Mm -hmm. it's really hard for outside people to tell whether you're doing something in service to yourself or in service to God. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to you don't yourself want to fall into a bad spot by mm-hmm. playing those own those uh, games of rationality on your own mind. But at the same time, you don't want to walk by the letter of the law either because that doesn't turn out well. So it's 
I don't know if there is like a instructional way to uh, deal with this issue or if it is really just a, a matter of walking in the spirit. And if you are walking in the spirit, you can recognize those situations in yourself. And that yeah. may be entirely up to you and God. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's where we land on it. Yeah, I, I think I think you're probably right. But I've had conversations with people that have they've said, you know, this kind of conversation. And it's like, well, I derive joy from serving others. So is that selfish? Is that selfishly motivated because I derive joy from serving others? And it's like, well, no, because you're doing what God's asked you to do. But yeah, isn't it selfishly motivated because I get so much out of it? It's like, well, it could be if you look at it that way. But ultimately, mm-hmm. it's we're serving God. We're, we're doing what he's asked us to do anyway. Well, and in regard to that specifically, I mean, Scripture says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Absolutely. That Scripture doesn't ignore the fact that there is a there is a blessing in yeah. serving others. There is a blessing yeah. mm-hmm. in giving, uh, and so um, I think in in regard to that, I mean, it, it just is that's the way that it works. Yeah. Uh, that's the way God set it up to work, so that we, you know, not that not that we receive some kind of, uh, or maybe I should say it this way: if I am serving someone else sheerly for my benefit yeah well that's problematic right um but if if i derive joy from serving others well that's just a byproduct of serving others um and so which i think brings us to the larger issue which is is my aim and is my pursuit love in the things that i am doing Mm -hmm. right so let's go back to the example in Scripture. If Rahab had lied about the location of the spies because she was worried about what they would do to her if they found out the spies were there, that's a different thing than if she says, I am preserving the lives of these men. Mm-hmm. And and I know that that kind of gets messy and it's hard for us to separate those kind of motives out from one another sometimes. Um, but I think, I think that's really where the distinction comes. Mm-hmm. Is this something that I'm doing out of love or is this something that I'm doing in my own self-interest? Yep. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good litmus test. Yeah. Um, and it stands to reason that the more you become like Christ, the more doing God's work would feel selfish in a way because of the joy that you get from it. Like, because that's, that's your purpose. That's Mm -hmm. adds meaning to your life. So it's not that you need to be self flagellating all the time. And that's, and that should be your marker to determine whether or not you're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, Mm -hmm. because sometimes it doesn't feel like uh, self flagellation. Sometimes it feels like it it feels joyful and exciting and purposeful and all that. And so that's, that's very interesting. And then we, we certainly do see um, in history people who get this wrong like i think hitler got this wrong well he got a lot wrong but this was one of the things that he got wrong Um, feels like we talk about hitler a lot on the show so well he's an interesting case here because he called himself a child of providence Mm -hmm. and he called himself that after he survived like three different ironclad assassination attempts Mm -hmm. and i mean i don't know what he believed not inside his head but he may have believed that he was on a divine mission Mm -hmm. and if you get the mission wrong or if you get the character of God wrong and then you assert that you're on a divine mission, that's terrible because then you can justify anything. And right. so, I don't know. I think that's why it was it's sort of important to parse that out. But 
Well, I think the lesson to be learned is, um, you know, don't be like Hitler. It's <laughs> a good lesson. Wow. <laughs> Sage-like advice. Yeah. <laughs> Next month Simple only. <laughs> Simple and to the point. Um, okay. So when you think about content and the major platforms today, YouTube, Facebook, I think Facebook, Facebook's probably the largest uh, place that churches stream to, I would think. Probably. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Um, Just because of ease of access. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. Everyone's there. And that's something to think about too, is the fact that, you know, you can, the trope is build your own platform if you want to be able to do what you want. Well, it's not really a platform until everyone's on it. Yeah. Like everyone has to be there for it to become a public square. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, you can make a website and if there's no one on it, it's essentially useless. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So what if these places, these public squares where churches are in, for now, still enjoying the privilege of streaming their content and being able to uh, reach people that way. What if these platforms become prohibitive? Where should we start putting our content? And like, I don't know if there's a good answer to this. I know Rumble is is uh, an up and coming YouTube competitor. They just offered Joe Rogan like a hundred million dollars to come over from Spotify, which I don't think that's going to end up panning out. But it's interesting to think about that they have that kind of those kinds of resources. I don't know if they're funded by somebody that's you know anti YouTube or whatever. But so have you have you put much thought into this? Like, where are we going to put the content if these major platforms become prohibitive? I will say <clears throat> that is not something that I that is um, comes real naturally for me. Um, I, I tend to be when it comes to technology and things like that. Um, I'm definitely not an early adopter. I'm I'm somebody who's kind of um, later when it comes to any kind of technology. So I rely on our team a lot for this kind of stuff. But I will say this: I'm a a thousand percent sure, and that's obviously overstating. But, <laughs> Uh, a thousand percent sure <clears throat> that churches who preach the whole gospel, churches who preach that men are objectively men and women are objectively women, that 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 uh, sexual sin outside of uh, se sexual sin, which specifically sin outside of the the um, the context of marriage, is s sinful, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it might be. Churches that preach this kind of stuff are going to be deplatformed at some point. Um, and I think it's it's not a matter of if that happens, it's when it happens. It will happen for sure. So I don't have a good answer, but I will say every church needs to have a plan for what happens when that, because it will happen. So I, I don't know what platform they go to or what they do. I just know it's going to happen. They need mm -hmm. to have some sort of plan. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't know enough about what options are available out there. I mean, like you said, every church has the option of building their own uh, repository, <laughs> in lack of a, you know, because mm -hmm. like you said, it, it there's a certain size and availability of scope that's before you can actually call something a platform. But you can certainly house your content on your own uh, website or whatever. Um, but I don't know then in terms of marketing yeah, distribution and distribution and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know how you do that. What I do know is that in times of persecution, the church has always flourished. Yeah. Hmm. What I do know is that even with all of the mass marketing and mass communication that is available to us, the most effective 
form of communication for the gospel Mm -hmm. is sitting across the table from a friend Mm -hmm. and sharing life and sharing your story and sharing Jesus with them in that way. And I don't think that's ever going to change. Uh, And so, you know, I don't think it's an either or. I hope that it's both and. But we have to be sharing the gospel with our friends. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. We cannot ever Mm -hmm. co-opt that to some other entity. Um, or, and, and we've done this throughout history. I mean, people always, we always, I say people, I, I don't want to point a finger because I can be just as guilty. We always tend to put that responsibility over onto someone else, whether it's our church or whether it's the pastor or whether it's that friend that we perceive as being more spiritual than I am or whatever the case may be, we always tend to push that responsibility off on someone else. They will share the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we we just can't do that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the scripture doesn't leave any room for that. We, all of us are called. And if all of us will take seriously that calling then these ideas of, of platforms and mm-hmm. digitals, it, it won't matter. Mm-hmm. It really won't matter. Well, and, and there's two things I want to mention. First is I think COVID, <clears throat> for a lot of churches, COVID um, brought to the stark reality how um, how tenuous our positions were in a lot of ways. Number one, there were a lot of churches who were meeting in rented space. Uh, they they were specifically schools, and all of a sudden schools were shut down for COVID, right. and all, now churches couldn't meet anymore. The other one was a lot of churches who did not have an online presence, and now were forced to have get an online presence, and they realized, hey, our position is was more tenuous than what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. Same thing for the in-person churches that had presences in schools, because I have friends that had multiple locations, and after COVID, it's like, well, we didn't reopen in the schools. And what they said to me was, uh, we wanted to be able to control our own destiny. Mm-hmm. And so I think when it comes to online, there's got to be a way um, for us to be able to control our own destiny, for yeah. us to say we're not dependent on Mark Zuckerberg flipping a switch or you know YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. Um, and the other thing, you know, kind of along with Todd's point is, I think <clears throat> two of the greatest revivals in the history of the world um, – globally are happening right now in the nation of China and the nation of Iran. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're bro- we're broadcasting more Christian content in the United States than ever before because more churches are online. More churches are streaming their services. More churches are – but it doesn't seem to be making a huge difference in terms mm-hmm. of a spiritual awakening. Right, right. So it's it's not that there's a lack of content. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's something else, right? So mm-hmm. that's where, again, going back to your point, it comes back to, hey, we can produce – and get as much out there as we want, but if it's not ultimately changing people's lives, if if they're not interacting differently, and you know, then it doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I think about in in these conversations too, and look, this is something. I mean, earlier today, right, the three of us were in a meeting talking about engaging people online, and yeah. what does it look like for us to actually function as a campus online and really yeah. engage people, and you know, and so these are these are not questions that. At, at Summit Church that we're shying away from or, you know, we're not like Luddites, you, you know, yeah. or <laughs> that kind of thing. I think we have to engage these arenas. But I also think that we just, we have to remember 
that the power and the importance of the local church. Mm-hmm. And man, let's say let's say these platforms do like let's say tomorrow they were gone. That doesn't mean that we have to have less impact in our communities because they are mm-hmm. right. Uh, and maybe, maybe. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I want to take the conversation here. I guess I will. But, you know, like the celebrity culture that we've built mm-hmm. in the church, mm-hmm. um, perhaps it would do us some good to go, oh, mm-hmm. my reach isn't global anymore, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I really need to focus on raising up the people that are around me and sending them to the places that God is calling them to go, sending them into the arenas that God is calling them to go and stop trying to build my platform and truly build the kingdom of God. And I think that would be that honestly, that's a question we need to be addressing whether or not these platforms, you know, kick us off or not. I mean, I don't know. It, It, Maybe I'm going too far with that. No, but. I, I think that you're making an excellent point. So one of the, the there's a couple of questions that spin off of this, and one of them is that okay, it seems like a lot of um, content creators, whether they're churches or whether they're individuals, their their philosophy of online content is to like how to catch the algorithm and you know go mm-hmm. viral and build their platform and all the rest. Um, when I think about online church or online ministries in general. Uh, I think that they'd be more effective, particularly in this climate, in being steered toward edification of the local body, like you're saying, Todd. Uh, like, and, and a repository works really well for that. So like, if you're not, here's a good reason why you shouldn't be trying to catch the algorithm or trying to like put all of your effort into doing that. First of all, we don't know how uh, close the horizon is for these platforms. You know, for what if mm-hmm. you build a YouTube channel that has 3 million subscribers and then you get kicked off YouTube for preaching biblical you know, mm-hmm. messages. So it seems like there's more longevity in the, in the idea of the local repository or the, the content that's aimed at the, pe- the the local body than there is in trying to uh, flourish in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, uh, and let me say this, just like churches found themselves ill prepared for, for church that was online and, and not in person, I think they realized like, Oh, we made a mistake by not, thinking ahead by thinking yeah. that's not coming for us. It's coming for you, right, mm-hmm. at some point. And the question is, are you prepared for it or not? I think the same thing needs to be said about what is your what is your uh, your your plan or your strategy if you're deplatformed, if you can't be on Facebook, if you can't be on YouTube, what is it? Yeah. And it's not that we have a plan, here's what you do. It's just you need to be thinking ahead, forward thinking mm-hmm. no matter what. Yeah. Um, and so I think pastors need to be thinking that way. What does this look like um, down the road? What do I need to be ready to shift and change and pivot on? Right. We yeah. should build in contingencies for things like COVID. Like so many Absolutely. people were caught off guard by COVID that if, if, if they had had those contingencies in place, then it just would have been a lot less stress. If nothing else, it would have been a lot less stress. Well, yeah, yeah. every church was caught off guard by COVID. But the difference was, <clears throat> I think the churches that that tended to respond best to it were the churches that were already doing what they needed to do. They they already had a strong small group base. They already had online giving platforms. They already had right. um, online church 
because um, if they already had small groups, they could transition the small groups online. I mean, so they could pivot easier than churches that were building all that from scratch. And it's not that those churches were ready for COVID. They were just they were just more forward thinking. They were they were already doing some things that they probably needed to be doing. And so I would say mm-hmm. the same thing. Churches just need to be thinking ahead of what they're comfortable doing, mm-hmm. saying, okay, yeah. we need to be ready for every eventuality because the world is changing. Mm-hmm. Right. And in terms of um, in terms of online platform, I would say this too, right? Number one, don't be archiving everything you've got solely on YouTube and Facebook. Have your own mm-hmm. archive, right? Mm-hmm. Have those things available. The second thing is that I think that there will always be organizations that are like-minded that you're going to be able to utilize Mm -hmm. whether it's the church online platform which we use at summit church you know and it's free for churches to use and you can stream to that platform and then your people can access it through that or you know and there are others out there too but um there will always be things that are available like that the second thing that i was thinking too is that our our reach isn't nearly as big as we would like to think that it is mm-hmm. most of the time, right? Just because I'm, just because your services are available on YouTube and Facebook doesn't mean that the entire world has access to your stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and even if they did, I mean, number one, the algorithms are going to bury them most of the time. Number two, even if everybody on earth did have access to your materials, we are fooling ourselves if we think that they're going to be accessing our materials most of the time. The people who watch online for the most of us are people who are connected to our church in some way. Mm-hmm. Those people are still going to find you whatever platform they yep. need to get to you on. Yep. So again, we need to be focused on our reach as a local body on connecting people to God and connecting people to each other. And the rest of that stuff will take mm. care of itself. Yeah. That's good. That, Todd, what you're saying really brought something to, uh, to my mind. And it's the idea. So this is, this is a question. If this happens, do you think that there's going to be a mass migration? Okay. So for instance, is there a straw that breaks the camel's back for a Facebook or a YouTube? And I think about like when Twitter uh, put the ban on Donald Trump, I thought that was going to be very bad for them. I thought that there was probably a lot of people who were only on Twitter to see Trump's tweets. (laughs) And when he was gone, I couldn't believe they did it. I was like, whoa, you know, that I thought that was a definitely shooting themselves in the foot. And maybe they did to some degree. I don't know. I'm not familiar with their what whatever their ratings would be now as opposed Mm -hmm. to when he was on the platform. But it seems to be the case. It seems to me that if you eliminate too many people and nobody likes to be on a platform or be in a space where everyone just agrees with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not interesting, you know? And so you would think that in their own interest, these places wouldn't want to continue to cast off people who are saying things that they don't agree with. So uh, do you think that if like, say next week, all the churches are just scrubbed from YouTube, uh, is there going to be like a mass migration to a different platform? And do we even need to think about that? Um, I, I I don't think there would be. Yeah, I don't either. Um, now if they start deplatforming everybody who has, you know, Christian on their profile, you know, mm-hmm. that's a whole different thing. Um, I think in in that case, then then yeah, those folks would go somewhere, but. 
again, if we think that most people are on Facebook because they're wanting to engage content from our churches, we are deluded, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, so no, I, unfortunately, I don't think that there would be a mass exodus from those platforms. I don't even think. <clears throat> I, I don't even think when some churches are deplatformed because maybe they're preaching truth that um, that the platforms don't like. Um, that won't cause the other churches to leave either, because uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of churches that are like, "Well, we believe this," yeah, you know, but it's like, eh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's no big deal. You know, they might not be an affirming church, but they're they're not they're not going to pick that fight. They're right? not going to preach it on a Sunday, right? Yeah. yeah, right. And so they're like, "Ah, eh, we're fine," and and just think how many churches have not made other shifts, you know, culturally throughout the years. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk to churches all the time that they're doing church perfectly if it was 1978, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, wait a second, you haven't made a shift. And yeah. it's because they know that what they're doing isn't working, but they're comfortable with what they know. And so there's a lot of churches that I think might look and go, well, this is what we've been doing. And is it the most effective? Probably not, but it's it's fine. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to keep doing it. And that's their attitude about a lot of things. Yeah. So why would that not apply to you know, if they're streaming their service or whatever it might be. So yeah. I, I feel like that would probably be the case. There are a lot of churches that are lukewarm enough for mm-hmm. YouTube to keep them around as like token churches. Like, oh, you know, we didn't get rid of mm-hmm. all the churches. Look at all these churches. Yeah. But, you know, they might just be, you know, agreeable enough to stay there. Yeah. And and I would even go back and say, you know, you were talking about deplatforming Trump from Twitter. But <clears throat> I think I think we want and I don't know if this is healthy or not, I think we want voices that sound like ours because it's affirming. And we go, see, the world thinks like I think. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of the um, you know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, they want us to stay engaged online as, possi- as long as possible. So they're going to give us the fringiest stuff, the stuff that's fringy on the side I believe or the stuff that's fringy on the other side to keep me on their platform yeah. as long as possible. So I, I, think, I think it... Kind of makes sense to deplatform some fringy people as long as I've still got people that you'll engage with mm-hmm. and keep you on, keep your eyeballs on it, and you know. Yeah, and unfortunately, when and when and if or if and when this this kind of thing begins to happen, there will be those who are deplatformed not because of what they said, but because of the way that they said it, and those then will become the. Um, the reasoning behind then deplatforming others who maybe are saying things well and with grace and with love, um, yeah. But because you know, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It it will be the justification for then a mass kind of deplatforming. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I think for a lot of churches, I mean, they got to think about. I'm going to sound like it's a conspiracy theorist when I say this, but you know, I said earlier that uh, we will be deplatformed if we preach the truth. But not only that, I think there's coming a day, maybe not too distant future, when you're going to lose tax exempt status. Yeah, mm-hmm. pastors are going to lose their housing allowance. So I mean, like even for those kind of things, I would tell pastors you need to start thinking ahead because this is something we've talked about internally. What happens when pastors lose their housing allowance and that that tax benefit? What happens when, um, you know, when some of the tax benefits we have as pastors are lost? What is our church going to do to help offset that for our pastors? So we're mm-hmm. putting some plans in place now. Yeah. Because we know it's going to happen, so why would we wait till it it 
punches us in the throat. You yeah. know, let's let's get ahead of it and start thinking through it now. Yeah, so. that's so wise because like the fear it would be okay, something big like that happens mm-hmm. and then pastors across the country say something like, well, I can't do church now. This mm-hmm. isn't the way it's supposed to be, so I'm not going to do it at all. Mm-hmm. And we don't want that mindset. And the best way to avoid that mindset is to say, okay, this is coming. Let's prepare for it. Yeah. And so that's 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 really good. So speaking of uh, people who try to catch the algorithm and, and get famous, um, <laughs> have either of you ever had to uh, deal with now I'm gonna use my words carefully here. Talented diva. Uh, so this is not someone who just thinks that they're talented. This is someone who's really talented, um, but is also has a bad attitude. And maybe they learned their bad attitude from you know corrupt cultural influences, and you know they just need some good pastoring in their life. Uh, have either of you had to deal with someone like that or teach someone like that? And what are some effective ways to rein this person in uh, if it's even worth trying? Uh, let me let me start and generally say, <laughs> I, I, I believe that if you are a high capacity oh, leader, man. no matter what your context is, if you're a high capacity leader, even if you're in a small town, rural area, small church, you are going to attract some high capacity people. Yep. Because like attracts like. So um, if if you are a high capacity leader, no matter wh- where your church is at, you're going to have this person come along your path someday. Um, so you need to be prepared for that. Um, and, and I have a number of times and I will, I will use some, I mean, I won't, some broad examples. My last church I was at, it was a very large mega church, multi-site in the Oklahoma city, Oklahoma. And, um, and we, we attracted a lot of people who wanted the platform, um, for selfish purposes, going back to some of our selfish motivation <laughs> earlier. Um, they, and they, they could justify it because they did. They were terribly gifted. Mm. But their gifting exceeded their their anointing. Their gifting exceeded their character. And so they, they wanted the platform because they wanted a stage. And a stage and a platform are two different things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think... I think when you recognize that, then there's an opportunity to talk to them and try to pastor them through that. And then some people don't want to be pastored through it. Some people don't see an issue or a problem. And that's where I always feel like we're better off without a highly talented person who's short on character. Mm -hmm. Uh, We never need a talented person that badly. Give me the person who's not as talented with high amount of character and affection for Jesus every day of the week. We can do a lot more with them than we can with a person who can sing the house down, but is unteachable. Mm, That's interesting. So that kind of sparks to my mind. There's this idea in the corporate world that um, you should not bring on a bad apple uh, with the idea that surrounding that person with good workers or good employees will elevate the person. Because what generally what we find is that the bad apple lowers the performance of the other yeah. people around him or her. And, you know, one way I could think about that is like, say you have someone who has a bad work ethic um, and then they show up and they could be surrounded by people who have great work ethic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people with the great work ethic will see this other person getting out of a lot of work and then they might start to build resentment it's like well this guy doesn't do what he's supposed to do so why should i do it and so then you can see how the the rising tide begins to lower and all the boats start to sink and so yeah so so this is true even when 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 you've got a leader who is permissive of bad behavior for whatever reason so maybe somebody's a low performer um, and the whole team knows they're a low performer if you've got a leader who is unwilling to address that low performer 
uh, it is it's demotivating for everybody on the team. So whether they are just not able to perform, or if they're a diva and unwilling to do what everybody else is doing, you get you get the same result. So so it really ultimately comes back to leadership. How are you leading your team? How are you leading the people? Whether they are whether they are like you were saying the diva that's just not doing everything they need to do, or whether they are the low performer. If you're leading well, it's going to set the example. But again, that that person who's super talented, but <clears throat> can't get meet their deadlines, or can't get things in on time, yeah. or can't show up when you're supposed to show up, and they think they're exempt because they're talented. Mm-hmm. Well, that does. It's going to impact and infect your whole organization. Uh, and it, but it comes back to your leadership every single time to me. Yeah, you really have to protect the culture that way. And that might be a good reason not to bring on a bunch of people at one time. So like if you're trying to do aggressive expansion and like if you're in a position yep. to do aggressive expansion, like that's great. You know, mm-hmm. that means that things are working and you have resources and there's demand and all of that. But mm-hmm. it should we measure our expansion? Like say, oh, I could do this in the next year, but... I'm only going to do this in the next year because I want to guard how many people I'm bringing on at one time. So like as a hiring manager, as a pastor, how do you approach those situations? Like, do you kind of go for the biggest, best possibility or because we want to dream big also, Mm -hmm. but, or do you sort of, are you careful with the rate at which you're expanding and bringing people on? Uh, For me personally, I tend to be a big swinger like you know let's swing for the fences and we're gonna we're gonna miss some but we're gonna hit a home run once in a while so I would rather I would rather say okay hey we're gonna trust our culture we're gonna trust yeah. our hiring process and not even hiring even for even for pastors maybe have a vision for your church where you're like man I need to onboard five new leaders in areas and they're all going to be unpaid leaders. Um, even for that, I would say, make sure you are, you have a process for them that you're trusting that process, you know, and if you need to make adjustments, make adjustments. But I would much rather say, Hey, let's go for, you know, let's go for the, and I hate calling it quick growth, but you, like you were saying, Mm -hmm. let's go for that. Let's swing for the fences and see what happens. And then if we need to adjust, we can adjust. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, that's where I come back to. I want to trust my selection process. You know, people like Craig Rochelle say you you hire slow, you fire fast, and so you know you take your time. You make sure you're picking the right people. Right. You know, and that's going to help in the long term too. I think what happens though, so many times is we, especially in churches, we have a need and we see somebody who fits a need. Um, somebody moves into our church and they're a great guitar player, and we're like, oh my gosh, we need a guitar player. Can you play this weekend? Yeah, and we don't bother to ask the question. Why have you been to five different churches in the last? year and a half (laughs) yeah right we just go i have a need and they can fit a need Mm -hmm. and we so we hire fast and then we fire slow we do the opposite we go oh my gosh this person's killing us but they're such a good guitar player we'll give them another shot (laughs) well and eight months later the team is demoralized and you don't have a guitar player and now you're worse off than you were when you started yikes yeah that's that's terrifying to think about todd you were a worship pastor for a very long time i'm sure you've run into this quite a bit like so would you say that that the protection is in <laughs> uh, would you say that the protection is in avoiding the diva out of the gate and so like what i'm getting from mel with this idea of like we should swing for the fences so it's less about avoiding the diva and more about knowing what to do when you encounter that person so what would you say to that as far as like in practice have you tried to well we, we always try to avoid these kinds of people if we know that you know who it is but 
or maybe not always. That's something that you can speak into also. But yeah. what do you think about all that? Uh, man, I, so the first thing I would say is that I think that culture is a corrective for these things most of the time if mm-hmm. you build good culture, mm-hmm. right? If I, if I build a culture, whether it's on a worship team or whether it's your church as a whole, whatever, if you build a culture that values servanthood, uh, that values contribution over credit, that um, and that rewards those things, right? It recognizes those mm-hmm. things, then then th- those can be correctives for some of this other stuff um, without you necessarily having to say something. Now that doesn't mean you're going to get to avoid saying something, right? There are going to be times when there are going to be people that you're just going to have to say, hey, this is not going to this is not going to work, you know. Uh, I, over the years, I've had to put people on a probationary period. Say, hey, you're not going to be able to serve for for the next three months, or you're not going to be able to serve for the, you know. And there have been a couple of times where I've had to say, this isn't going to work, right? You can, and and that's my last resort. I never that's never the thing I set out to do. You want to give people an opportunity mm-hmm. to correct that behavior, to recognize, you know. And if look if if somebody's if somebody's got the humility to recognize where they're wrong, and and then you know then that's really what it's all about. I mean, all of us I think sometimes can. Uh, well, I say all of us. I can. I'll speak for musicians. All musicians that I have ever met, right? You don't pick up a guitar or grab a microphone and stand on a stage because you don't want anyone to notice you. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can play guitar in your bedroom and no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. You don't, but you step on a stage for a different reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so I think we number one, I want everybody on my team to recognize that that tendency to want glory for ourselves resides in all of us. Mm, yeah. That's an interesting point, man. Like, because that's. I mean, you might be, someone might be trying to get into worship and they're thinking like, oh, I really enjoy being up there. And maybe that's a bad thing. I got to root that out. But hearing that from you, that you, that all musicians, like across the board, that's a temptation and even maybe even a feature. uh, That's, that's pretty, that's really. Well, I love the fact that you pointed out because they might even recognize like, oh yeah, that's, that's part of who I am. Um, But, and it's not, and I said something earlier about when somebody wants the stage, it makes me a little nervous when they're, looking for it but that i think that's a natural desire and just like every other natural desire it has to be subjected to the cross right yeah like we have yeah. to go oh yeah whatever this natural desire is we lay it at the foot of the cross and you know just like that desire for glory yeah so i i, I remember a particular a particular thing that happened for me uh i, I traveled with a band for a while and we were starting to do fairly decent sized events right uh and even when you're nobody if they put you on a stage people think you're somebody yeah you know and so i remember this one particular event we it was about three thousand students there it was a like a youth event there were about three thousand students there and my band and i were leading worship for the event and so you know we had a merch table with CDs and T-shirts and, you know, all Cassette that. tapes. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, <laughs> I'm that old. Reel to reel. We had a reel. Our reel to reels were there and available. Uh, no, so, uh, so, no. <laughs> so I'm standing at the table 
and people want you to sign things. They just, you know, and so I'm sitting there signing things and, you know, like, like any good Christian artist would, I'm signing my favorite scripture verse underneath my name. Yeah. Uh, but I remember, and uh, I was feeling pretty good about myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, cause there's, I mean, there's a line of people and they want my, they want my name on their, you know. Uh, and seriously, like, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was really loud inside my heart. You know what I mean? Felt the Lord say to me, that belongs to me. Oh, yeah, man. Right? And mm-hmm. I knew in that moment that I was taking glory for myself that did not belong to me. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And man, that is not a place that I ever want to be. And I, I don't think that anyone who truly has been transformed by the love of Jesus wants to take glory on themselves that they know belongs to the Lord. But as shepherds, we have to lead them to that place because all of us have that tendency to, we, we all, we all have a lie that we've believed about what will give us value about what, what makes us something, what, you know, and, and the Lord wants to root that lie out of all of us, yeah. whether it's, I want to stand on a stage and feel the adoration of people, and that's what will give me value, or whether it's this person romantically, if I can just be with them, that will give me value, or whether it's if I could build this large of an online platform as a pastor, that will give me value, or if this person's opinion, or if I could get this job promotion, or whatever, like... We all believe a lie in regard to our identity at some at some place in our hearts, mm-hmm. and the Lord wants to root that out of us. And so, go, bringing this back to the diva conversation, if I just try to avoid every diva that comes my way because it's going to be a problem for me to deal with as a leader, well, then I'm I'm not doing them a service as a pastor at mm-hmm. that point yeah. by giving them an opportunity for the Lord to expose those things in their heart and for me to have an opportunity as a pastor to shepherd them through that. I'm just trying to I just want it to be easy for me, mm-hmm. and that's certainly not the answer. So I think you have to give those folks opportunities, but you have to be willing to shepherd and guide and have conversations and point back to the glory of Jesus over and over and over again. Um, Well, let me ask you this question then, Todd. When do you cut bait? Like, when do you go, I've done all I can to lead you to that place and it's not happening or you're not getting it or maybe their spirit's unteachable, whatever you want to call it. Like when when do you, when is the point that a pastor who's listening to this who maybe is dealing with a situation would go, okay, it's time for me to walk away from this? I think when a person consistently has excuses for why they are acting the way that they are rather than taking responsibility for themselves. Huh. That's good. Mm-hmm. When they are unwilling to say, Yes, I sinned. Yes, I was in the wrong. Yes, I, you know, um, w- when we won't take ownership, yeah. I think that's when you have to say, okay, well, then, then this is going to have to change. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. I think that's a great place to land this. Mel Massengale, Todd Stanley. Thanks, guys. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. A few notes of housekeeping before we sign off. The Back 40 Leadership Conference is happening June 24th and 25th at Summit Church. That address is 2707 West Pike Road, Indiana, Pennsylvania. 
Pastor Jim Hennessy will be speaking at the conference. I myself have had the pleasure of benefiting from Jim's teaching, and I can tell you, you're in for a treat. So go ahead and register now at back40.network. Thank you all so much for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.